Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast in today's episode. Wow, what a ripper. Ben Elton. Don't really need to do an introduction to Ben Elton, do I? He's a comedy legend, Ben Elton, as you'll hear on this podcast. Somebody that I grew up watching and idolizing and I absolutely love this chat. Uh, it was brilliant to talk to Ben about a whole bunch of issues uh, in comedy, in politics, in the world. He has a brilliant brain and uh, I think his shows will be absolutely amazing. In fact, I'm looking forward to going out and seeing one myself. Speaking of live shows, oh boy, I'm in Adelaide at the moment doing the Adelaide Fringe Festival. Will, uh, Will Informed is the name of my show that I'm doing in Adelaide. So please come along and see that. Uh, very exciting. And then after that, I'm doing Will Legal, my show about being arrested at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival for the first two weeks, 10 shows only, the final time I will ever do this show in Melbourne. So if you want to see it, this is your chance to come and see it. And then the second two weeks, I'm doing my completely improvised stand-up show, What You're Talking About, Will. That is a show entirely made up on the spot with the audience there in the room. These are such fun shows to do, and I think they're really fun shows to be in the audience of. In fact, often I get comments from people saying that they enjoy these shows more than my regular shows, which does disappoint me a lot because... I work really hard on those regular shows and put in months of effort and then sometimes I just make something up on the spot on the night and people are like, that's the best show you've ever done. So anyway, it's good. Well, anyway, you know what? I'm doing these shows and I love doing these shows. So if you want to come along and see them, please, 10 of those as well at the Comedy Theatre during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And my shows are on sale around the rest of the country as well. So go to comedy.com.au for the in information. But Ben Elton, Ben Elton is today's guest and... He is doing stand-up back after 15 years. We talk all about that in this episode. If you have an opportunity to go and see Ben Elton live, please go and do it. And if you don't, well, you know, he's got books and plays and musicals and all sorts of things that you can consume of Ben's. But I think you're really going to enjoy this chat, so let's get into it. It's Ben Elton. <laughs> Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Could not be more excited to have today's guest on the podcast. Uh, this man is uh, one of the major reasons that I actually end up doing things like this because when I was growing up in uh, country Victoria, little town, uh, you know, two television stations we would have down there back in the day. And my dad, who never watched any entertainment shows on television, just sport and uh, radio, shows about farming, shows about cricket, shows about football. That was his area of interest when it came to the arts. But my mum loved British comedy and occasionally... As a teenager, probably a couple of years too young to be staying up and watching these British shows. Um, some of the greatest bonding moments I ever had with my mother were sitting up watching shows like The Young Ones. And it is a major reason why I you know, have spent the rest of my life you know, pursuing this uh, weird and wild world of stand-up comedy. So very excited to have today's guest. But I look, you probably know who it is from that you know, introduction. Plus, there's a picture of him on the podcast <laughs> and his name is attached to the podcast. But this is the conceit. This is how the podcast actually starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? I'm Ben Elton. Hello, Ben Elton. I could not be more excited to have you here. I, I don't. I, I think I've mentioned to you in passing when we've run into each mm -hmm. other over the years how big a fan I, I was, but I probably have never had the time to explain to you when I, I certainly reflect. Never thought, never heard about your mum, who no. I love. Yeah, Good Chris, on you, Mrs. Anderson. Christine Anderson. Yeah. Loved, you know, loved the young ones. Loved Blackadder. 
you know, a bunch of other shows yeah. as well, you know, but we would sit up together and have these bonding moments where I think she finally had somebody to watch the shows with, you know, yeah. it was exciting for her, but no. to a little kid growing up in the country and seeing these incredibly subversive ideas, at least to, you know, mm. the life and the experience that I was living, it opened up a whole world to me. So thank you very much. And, uh, uh, be, while I'm going with the compliments, I might as well get them all out at the top, and then we can talk to you. No, but... no, let's let's spread them across <laughs> the whole podcast. Let's just keep 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 focused on it. I remember seeing you do stand up comedy live, and the reason I bring this up is it's where I want to start today. Is I saw you do stand up comedy live when I was about seventeen. I probably had seen Billy Connolly previous to you, but then I saw you, and it was. I'm not sure that I've ever laughed more in my life. Like the speed of ideas, the speed of thought, the relentless like nature of the show. And certainly something that, you know, I later on, you know, when I was doing stand up comedy, I was like, you know, I want to have, you know, the stories that Billy Connolly has, but I want to have as many punchlines mm-hmm. as Ben Elton has, mm-hmm. you know, and just these amazing shows. And so you're back doing stand up comedy. So can we can we start there and talk about stand up comedy? Of course, absolutely. I'm so glad you saw me but on early Australian gigs. Yeah, well, I'm back doing it again and turned out to be doing it Kind of much the same. I haven't slowed down very much. I'm a little bit... Uh, I think I'm a bit slower than I was. At, I sort of got to a very frantic pace in the late 80s, uh, but uh, sort of driven part by by, by fear, uh, sort of a, a kind of the shadow of the gong, I used to call it. I started out as a pretty rough school in the very early 80s in Britain. There was no kind of language for the sort of stand-up comedy I was doing, certainly, and a few others, which was kind of comedy of ideas as opposed to just a series of jokes. Um, and audiences took a while, so there was some pretty, you know, aggressive reactions early on, and I think that's one of the reasons I got so fast. But I'm still fast. I still have a lot to say. I just find I'm always one idea tumbles on another, and I'm glad that that, that kind of style inspired you because I think stand-up comedy is a great medium for ideas. It's a great medium for doing more than just laughing, but just laughing's a great thing. And to just laugh, you've got to have a good idea. A, 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 de- a good, honest, true laugh is probably inspired by quite an interesting idea at its heart. Okay, so let's start with ideas then, because mm-hmm. that's a brilliant place to start. So um, when you're writing a show like this, when you're putting together mm-hmm. a show, and how long had it been since you had last done uh, like a, a full stand-up tour with a full stand-up set? It was just under 15 years mm-hmm. between the two first nights when I... As I always do, I, I went on stage with a whole show. I don't do like 10 minutes warm up here and there because it tends to be a holistic whole my piece, even though it changes. Of course, every night is a, is a is unique in some way or other. But it starts with a, with, the, with the written word. And uh, yeah, it was 15 years between gigs. Uh, how long is the show? I'm, I'm going to just get some details first because this well, is more my curiosity. But how, how long do you do? I mean, it could be three and a half hours if I wanted right. because obviously things stretch and stretch and the ideas grow and develop. And in fact, the very first gig I did warming up back in uh, a little warm-up gig back last September in Froome, uh, a little west uh, country town in England, um, was already like two, two hours 20 because I, I found I had an awful lot to say. But I keep it. You don't want to, you know, overstay your welcome. It's kind of an hour and a half, maybe an hour and then an hour and five, but certainly not. You will get to the pub. Yeah. Even if it's a weeknight <laughs> gig, you will get to the pub and you won't, the babysitter, if you have one, uh, or in my, in my my audience tend to sort of be grandparents. These days. Not, not all, but, you know, some. Uh, but if, uh, yeah, you won't go into overtime with your babysitter. Uh, so, yeah, a couple of hours, a little bit more maybe. Okay, so because I'm interested in that. So you have 15 years break. Mm-hmm. Um 
I imagine you just have a lot of ideas. You know, suddenly you come back after all this time and you're a person who constantly, you know, has new ideas. And, of course, some of them will go into other projects that you're Mm -hmm. doing, whether it be a book or some other project that you go, here's where I'm going to deal with this particular idea. But you're coming back to the Mm -hmm. stand-up stage and there's so many things to talk about in the world right now. I mean, even just comedy itself has changed a lot in the last 15 years, you know, at least the way that people... Yeah, comment well, around a big comedy and about you know. For instance, I do a riff on this very thing. You know, I'm on stage. How you know what can I say? Because apparently you can't say anything anymore. This is what everyone tells. Oh, you can't say anything. You can't. You know. So what can you say as a comedian? If you, in fact, the only thing you can say is you can't say anything. <laughs> and one of the things that. Uh, uh, some comics have found a way of dealing with this is to say the things that you apparently can't say mm. and then claim they've been terribly brave for saying it, which I, I find <laughs> and, and, and subversive and, 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 and re- re- aggressively anti-PC, etc., yeah. etc., et uh, all of which I think is a pretty mm. small ambition to be anti-PC. Yeah. But um, Also, the, the mm. best kind of anti-PC and uh, satire mm. always tells you what it is. Yes, I mean, <laughs> exactly. I, 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 I think... It, it, when I started to write, you know, you've, the penny very quickly dropped. What a different world it is. Um, you know, I've got this little line I always use when I last taught I was smarter than my phone. Mm. But nonetheless, <laughs> it's true. And certainly I last taught prior to social media. Right. Um, you know, it had just begun, but it really wasn't, you know, it wasn't having the impact its impact, which was about to happen. Uh, now we live in a world where, uh, strangely, uh, p- politically, fiscal politics and um, national politics have drifted aggressively to the right, whilst social politics have continued to develop really in quite radically radical leftward, liberal leftward direct directions. Nobody was discussing the nature of gender last time I was on tour. That's how quickly a, a truly massive national and international conversation has landed uh, in, in the inbox, so to speak. Uh, it's one example of a, of, a, of a world, particularly where as somebody like me who tends to develop his ideas from a, a fairly radical, you know, I'm, I'm a liberal left sort of person. Doesn't mean, you know, conservatives can't enjoy my comedy, but, you know, it's certainly not where I stand politically or morally. Um, I invite everyone to my gigs. I'm I'm exchanging ideas and offering offering I hope and an interesting development out of the stuff we're all thinking about and we're all talking about. But um, the, the 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 rapid change in perception, this idea, for instance, that uh, you you you're not allowed to deal with certain subjects. That's that's rubbish. Yeah. I, I I've always known that that was a that's a right wing trope. Sometimes trotted out to defend to defend saying unpleasant bullying things. My view on political correctness is I tend to approve it. It tends to be just good manners. It tends to be respecting that we're all different. We don't live in the binary monoculture we all used to think we did. Um, and yet there are many people who, who claim, you know, oh, you can't, if you take something on, you give so much offence. My rule of thumb is if you believe you're honestly expressing your truth in a, in a proper and empowering manner, then if you give offence, then it's not your fault. Of course there's a chance of giving offence, and I deal with that on stage a lot. And the horror of being quoted out of context. You know, I do a riff on gender identification, which I think is empowering and right, accepting the accepting the, the wonderful new inclusion we're all feeling with these new ideas of being that the younger younger generations bring on, whilst exploring my own confusion as a, a sixty year old who's rapidly readjusting to new and different ways of looking at ourselves. Uh, I do this complicated, and um, it seems to be pretty funny riff. I've been doing it for a while. All the, all the warm-up gigs in Britain, as I call them, 75-date door to warm up for my yep. Melbourne shows. That's what we like to think. My too. Aussie shows. 
Uh, you know, and I say on stage, I say, you know, anybody takes this out of context, you could you could bring me down tomorrow. I could be the subject of a Twitter storm and, you know, I could be, you know, I could be snap-twatted and insta-buggered before the end of the day. <laughs> you know, uh, please don't do it. You know, please don't quote me out of context. I, I so make a big context rip out of is that. In- incredibly important to these things because I'm so glad, by the way, that you said all that. That's mm-hmm. because there can be a temptation as you get older, mm-hmm. and we see it, and you know, it's something that we constantly have to fight against, mm-hmm. which is this idea that. You know, if things are more confusing to me now, therefore they are wrong, you know. <laughs> and, exactly. And particularly in comedy, you see it as people get older, their they lack, get more reactionary. Yeah, and their mm. lack of connection to, you know, mm. times and as times change because they're further and further away from those times also. I was so That's pleased. That's a central theme to, the, to my yes. current tour, yeah. But what I love is, like, the way that you're exploring that, you're saying, I'm going to explore this idea that we know this is a good idea, mm. but I'm going to explore my personal confusion around it, which is a connection point also for your audience and people who are also going, I want to be the person who is supportive of this also, but I'm feeling all these confused feelings because this is new to me and this well, is just not exactly how I grew it. up. And Generally, you bring most, them in. Most people are on the side of the angels, but also they find it... They find it to have orthodoxies challenged, which which for them were inalienable. I mean, I was born into a generation and many previous generations that believed that sex and gender were were, were entirely linked, and now we're learning that they're not. Sex is biological. Gender is is sociological. Gender is a, is a social concept. Um, these are interesting ideas, and I do share my confusion, my support, but also my confusion. And uh, in the long run, I seem to have. You know, because I'm honest to my own self, I I don't seem yet to have caused myself any trouble because it's an honest exploration. You know, the idea, for instance, that somebody I've admired all my life, a feminist icon like Jermaine Greer, should suddenly find herself on the wrong side of much of what is considered modern feminism is surprising and fascinating, and I'm buggered if I'm not going to explore it and, and, and look at it from both sides because that's my job to express myself as honestly in my comic art as I can. Uh, and, and that is a central... It's not the whole show, but certainly, oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood has been the, the, the theme of my life as an artist, and it could never be more relevant than right now when there's this idea, whether it's true or not, that everybody's desperate to, to take offence and leap on you. Whether we are living in a genuine age of outrage or whether it's merely a kind of unholy pact between half a dozen Twitterers and then the mainstream media who are too too lazy to do anything but quote Twitter anymore, um, whether or not there's real mass outrage out there or it's actually a strange bubble manufactured within a tiny Twitter storm that then gets repeated on the morning chat shows because you've got to talk about something after all. I don't know. but it's um, certainly I feel like you it. do know. I do know. <laughs> I, I feel like it, you made it very clear yes. which one of those you think it is and I agree with you. We live in a, a rate, you know, an age of outrage, outrage. Yes. That's what manufactured, it is. Manufactured, much of it manufactured. Outrage around the outrage. You can say anything, mm. but if you are a decent person, you won't say bullying brutal things that use comedy to exploit a minority in an audience in order to get cheap laughs um, from the majority. But that's been the same since the dawn of time. That didn't come with trans, it didn't come with gay marriage, it didn't come with any issue, uh, because the difference between good and bad comedy has always been whether the comedian's being honest to their own principles and when they know they... When a comedian winks at the audience and goes, oh, I've been a bit naughty, I shouldn't have said that, basically, no, they shouldn't. They're lying, because really, they wanted to say it and they were going to say it from the start. They're not being a cheeky chappy, they're being a bully. It's interesting to me uh, the next step of this, this mm. this kind of intellectual conversation about mm. the changing nature of comedy that we're having, which is 
to then, are you able to look back at material you've done previously? Because this is just something mm. that, you know, I'm talking from my own experience here mm. to go, not only has comedy changed and the way I do comedy now is different to, you know, the way I would have, you mm. know, 10, 20 years ago. But that particular routine I did 10 years ago is something that, if I was given my time over again today, I wouldn't do. Do you have any of those well, in your back pocket? That's not only that's a that's a huge part of the act. I mean, and it's great fun exploring the changing nature of society. I'm in a very very interesting position. I've been doing stand up comedy since 1981. That's mm. it's 40 years, mm. uh, and I've done a lot of it. I mean, I know I've been away for 14 years, but prior to that, I did a, a whole new show every two years. Um, and I have looked back, and I don't, or whilst all the material in the new show is all new, I actually, it's not entirely all new, because I revisit a couple of highly, very radical, and much applauded, I mm. sound like I'm being cocky here, but I, going back to routines I did about sex, and indeed gender, even though I didn't really know I was doing it then, uh, which were applauded and definitely considered on the side of progressive inclusiveness, mm. on the side of of, of the, the angels, yep. th those being those that wish a better world and a more inclusive one and a more tolerant one. And yet such routines that could possibly now have to be rethought. And I, this is a very... I mean, obviously, this is all in the pursuit of comedy. It was all beginning to sound rather dry, but, you know... No, that's the point of this podcast. It's a very funny... It's a Yeah, we're talking about comedy. We're yes. not trying to be funny. On stage, I'm being funny, yeah. but I, I have a lot of fun, and I think... I think make some illuminating observations by looking at a routine, for instance, I do I, I talk, I don't want to give too much away, I want people no, to come and see the show, absolutely. but nonetheless, I look back at a routine, probably the most radical and influential t routine I did in my early days, which was about um, the fact that the world would be a very different place if it was men that menstruated. And Remember, uh, very I, famous I, routine. It was, and it really did change yeah. the nature. I mean, it was all based around the fact that you couldn't advertise tampons on the telly. It was considered too rude and confronting for, for television viewers because women should keep all that business a secret. Yeah, a great, a uh, good piece of, yeah. like, uh, you know, social criticism. Very right on, quite good. Lots of applause from feminists, yep. and it changed things. Within a, within a year, you know, there were rollerblading feminists with their, <laughs> you know, living free on every ad break, you know, you know, in glorying in the glory of their winged tampons, uh, well pads or whatever. <laughs> and not, I don't think, I don't think you put the wings, wings on. No, the no, no, you don't put a wings on the tampon. Let's That's get basic they... engineering right here. Is that the bit yeah. that you have to apologise exactly. for? No, I, I, I confused a lot of women, right. to be I honest. Confused a lot of women. <laughs> it was a, an interesting routine, and I, I will give away as much for those who listen to this yeah. and come and see my show. I then talk about the fact that clearly we now live in a world where there is a very, very interesting, and I think very legitimately explained school of thought, which says men can menstruate if they're trans men. And if we are to follow, as we are, I think, all beginning to come to, to, come to understand mm. that, that this is a real thing, that gender is not sexual, uh, then the routine based absolutely on the idea what would the world be like if men should menstruate needs yeah. to be at the very least reworded mm. for a world in which we consider that there are men who do menstruate those who identify as male. Very interesting times, and I'm not going to pretend that I don't find that intriguing but also confusing for, as, as somebody who's coming to this, uh, in a way, learning it, because I'm, young people seem to just have been born with this feeling. My kids have no surprise or they're, they're, they're entirely unfazed by the gender conversation. I don't think there's anyone over 30 who, who is entirely unfazed by it. I'm a completely... 
You know, I'm a very kind of radical guy socially, and I am embracing it and working through it. But that doesn't mean I find it an easy concept. You're right about the kids, though. I had mm. a guest on the show recently who was talking about the fact that a six-year-old uh, had said, uh, at, you know, so the conversation had been around mm. the grandfather, I think it had been, or somebody from the older generation mm. anyway, saying, I just don't understand the idea of, the, you know, they mm. and, and them. Mm. And the six-year-old had said, Granddad, you don't need to understand it. You just need to respect it. Huh? <laughs> that was a six-year-old? <laughs> six-year-old. Well, but it's what you're saying about it's having been where raised. I'm coming through, and I, 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 but I do understand yeah. it. I actually do see the logic mm. of the difference between sex and gender. I mean, it's a, it's an idea I had to come to. I wasn't born thinking it. A lot of my ideas, I felt as a, as a kind of what my politics from the eighties came to me almost. It seemed by symbiosis. Mm. It seemed as if I'd been born with it. Yeah, and, you didn't and, have to work at it. No, where just as young people don't seem to have to work at their their politics, I'm having to look at it and think about it, and getting a lot of fun and a lot of comedy out of it. Uh, which so far, at least, all sides, if there is such a thing as sides in such complicated issues, uh, seem to feel I'm at least, I'm being honest and at, at, at and at worst nothing less than, a, than, than than attempting to make a positive contribution through the comedy I'm doing. We've got some good news. Uh, I saved some compliments. I <laughs> didn't spend them all at the start. Yeah. I read your uh, last book, which is Identity Crisis. Which deals again which with very much explores this explores this area, not mm. just this area. Mm. It explores, like, it's again a great media criticism and a, you know, a, criti- a criticism of the entire infrastructure that is, you know, is around these issues mm. and how they can be manipulated and how they can be legitimate and you know, I'll, 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 this is ending in a compliment, so mm. please just f- forgive the first bit of it. Mm. I went into it with a little bit of trepidation because when I was a teenager, Stark, again, was one of those books that really just changed my life a bit. You know, like mm. I just the amount of jokes that was in that book, but the message behind that book, I mean, a message, you know, that is as relevant, well, more relevant, no, you know, sadly. in the year 2020 right, than it was in 1989 or whenever you wrote 30, that. 88, I wrote it. 32 years later, it's worse, isn't it? Yeah. Right. You know, and so I love that book so much. Mm. You know, again, just would have read it probably seven or eight times. Wow. You know, the amount of jokes. Well, because there's so many jokes There's in a lot it of as jokes well. in that book. You know, probably, you know, you, you have gone away from putting that many yeah. jokes in books. And it was a stand-up writing, you know, a book. You know, there was every single line had a joke. But, you know, it also meant that it rewarded, you know, rereading it six or seven times so you could explore all the jokes. But you worry you're like, oh, I know what this book's about. Hmm. Is there going to be a moment in this where Ben starts to sound like a, you know, confused old, old man, man. Yeah, not, yeah. not like in a... a good way, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was so relieved and pleased to, like, I think it's an excellent, excellent book, like, because everything that explores in it, the way that you have weaved together that infrastructure and the balance of not overplaying the hand too much in, you know, each part of it, I think was just so brilliantly and delicately done. So it does not surprise me that you're handling these issues on stage in the same way because to put together something like that with the deft touch that it had, you've obviously done a lot of work to explore and think about all angles Mm. because particularly in a book, right, Mm. you have to put yourself in the mind of these various characters to say what would their motivation be, what would their point of view be to this. If you're an alt-right incel guy who who blames women for the fact that you're not getting any, you know, et cetera. Yeah, you've got to find your way into that head and, and look at the attitudes of that. My daughter shared your trepidation when she first began to, you know, I talked to her about what I was writing. She's 20. She's a student. Um, and she she said, Dad, please, you know, you've got to be I know you are a good bloke, but, you know, some you've got to be careful and started to read it. She gave me great advice. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I... I 
She said, sometimes it can look like you're genuinely outraged at this rather than intrigued or whatever. And I said, well, it's the character, not me. Yeah, but you're a very subjective writer, Dad. Um, and I definitely explore this in my stand-up. The whole point, I talk about, oh, where's he going with this? Have I, am I, have I turned into a dad? Is the next thing I'm going to say, ho, ho, I identify as a black lesbian so I can get a job at the BBC. You yeah. know, that, the most, you know that, the, the mm-hmm. most boring dad joke of all is the, oh, I've decided I'm a fish then. Yep. You know, it, oh, for God's sake. And I do, I explore this. Is that yep. me? And I take it to that edge. And then I come back and I say, no, that's not actually me at all. But I understand where those things are coming from because I, I'm, I'm, I'm of the generation that's making those jokes, even though I'm not one of the ones doing it. So, yeah, Identity Crisis was a, is in a way quite linked to the tour, although very completely different material. And, of course, as with Identity Crisis, it's not all about that by any means. Identity Crisis was intriguing because I, what I found most interesting and continue to find about the current political conversation, as we now call it, is that whilst we're drifting ever more towards a, a, re, a re-establishment of geographical nationalism, the Scots want out, England wants out of... Britain wants out of Europe, Scotland wants out of Britain, uh, uh, Trump's building a wall round America, wants to keep the Mexicans out. Whilst geographical nationalism is, is rearing its ugly head again. Oh, I say ugly, I'll probably get big trouble from Scots. I understand there's a difference. I mean, again, that I got a terrible trolling. I'm in a real Twitter storm for trying to give a nuanced observation about my views of geographical nationalism and my fear of it, even when given the best intentions, and I believe it is the best intentions in the case of Scottish nationalism. Nonetheless, I personally find geography a strange place to start your political principles from. Having said that, left aside, and please don't take outrage if you're a Scot out out there, but having said that, the point I'm making is that whilst we drift towards geographical definitions and talking more about what it means to be English, are the English this or are the British that and are we Europeans, people themselves are endlessly, um, are ever more defining themselves by personal identity and finding their identity community across national and geographical boundaries, not within the streets of their own town, but with people online who feel the same way they do. So we've got this interesting situation where nations are, are drawing, pulling up the drawbridges and yet... The, the drawbridges can include a population which is a bewildering archipelago of, of, of digital communities. You know, we're not one national community. It drives me crazy, particularly in Australia. Australian politicians referring to people as Australians. Australians feel this. Australians want that. So it's, it, it's genuinely banal and deeply offensive. Of course, Australians are not one homogenous group. They are a gulag of communities, as are all, all national groups. And for a politician to say Australia wants this, what? So, so the same Australians that are, you know, are, 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 there are some Australians that sell it, want, to, want to move the date, and there are some Australians that feel deeply offended at the idea. That's not the same people. They, we're all part of the same country, and we need to come together in many ways. But I think the, the sooner we start to recognise that geographical and national definitions are, no, are becoming increasingly irrelevant in an identity-based gi- digital age, the better, I think. Well, also, I would add just maybe an extra you know, addendum to that, which is that the major problems the world are facing right now are not national Border problems. Clearly, you know, when the we talk about the of climate, of course, is a and this we get we see this in Australia played out all the time. Oh, we only contribute to blah 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 amount exactly. of the emissions. Well, 
Yeah, that's the problem because we're thinking of it as a country. Because we're thinking of it as a country. And if we can't set an example, how can we expect people far less well off than us who have not had the benefits of hundreds of years of colonial supremacy to do their bit? Clearly, everybody knows Australia cutting its CO2 in itself won't make the difference, but we obviously will have no moral card to play at the table with America and China if we don't lead by example. But and not, not just America and mm, China. I read mm. the other day that if all the smallest countries, all the, you know, one yeah. and two percenters yeah. all formed a coalition, that's about 25% of the global emissions. So well, Australia it, could be the country going, we're going to do way. it and then we're going to rally all these other countries by example to, you know, do, do our bit. Exactly, because having made the point that ge- geographical and national definitions are, are less relevant than they were, they're still very relevant because right. we are a country. We are all to get in it together. We, we, our taxes go, our taxes pay for the actions of our government, and we may not all be the same in terms of identity, but we are all Australians in 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 the most significant way, which is that we we act collect we collectively produce a government that acts on our behalf on the global stage. And the idea that that they that politicians should then come back and say, "What well, I'm interested in, what's happening in your backyard?" Of course, you have to be interested in that. But it's a lot of very different backyard for a start, and in the long run, the world is our backyard. Uh, how long have you lived in Australia you know, for now? What's the period of time we're talking? Well, if I were to quantify it temporarily, mm. temporarily, not yes. tem- well, anyway, in terms of time, I reckon it'd be about 13 out of the last 33 years or 30 years. I've been a half Australian since 1986 when I fell in love with an Australian girl and eventually married her, and we're still t- still together. And so that inevitably meant my Australian life began around the time of Stark. I wrote Stark in Fremantle. I've written almost all my novels in, in, in Australia. Um, and I'm an Australian citizen. citizen. We've been fully based here since 2010 when we wanted to give the kids their high school years in Australia. They did their, their pre-high school years in Britain. It's a very complicated and not easy way to manage a life, but it's a circumstance of, of romantic history that we've been able to make work. I've been able to share in a whole new country. I think I know Australia very well. I've become very much a part of it. Well, that, Although, that was part of the question I was leading to, which is I think you're in a, in some ways in a quite a unique position. You can't be quite a unique. I understand you can either be unique well, or not I'm unique. Moderate, but I'm moderately unique. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, We're in, all moderately unique. In that... You know, well, you're somebody who's seen a 30-year snapshot of Australia, but not oh, yeah. not entirely from the inside. No, you've had the opportunity to be constantly stepping outside Australia mm. as well. So you have a good sense of who we are when we're here at home, but you also have a sense of how the world has seen us and how perhaps that has changed over 30 years and how you, the nature of Australians has changed over 30 years. So. Mm. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I'm very interested in your insights of, you know, from someone who, yeah, yeah, who no, is part of I, us, I but it. also an observer of a, us. I am definitely part of it. I'm, you know, I've been, been a, you know, I paid an awful lot of tax and I've lived an awful lot of years in Australia and I know it, I know it well. And I made a movie three summers where I think I, I, I gave a pretty good snapshot of quite a lot of what's going on in Western Australia and, uh, which is my state, um, but nonetheless, I also live and work in Britain. Um, most of my work is British. I've made quite an effort to work in Australia, and it's not always been welcomed. Um, and in the long run, it, it's been easier just to, oh, well, bugger it, I'll just go back and work in Britain. Um, and so I'm outside a lot. There's been no doubt a change. When I first came to Australia, oh, how lucky are you? Oh, my goodness, everybody loved Australians, people in Britain. Oh, my goodness. And I used to have to say, look, I'm only going because I've met this beautiful girl. It's not that I'm a beach person or I'm trying... Because the Daily Mail, they wanted to say, oh, you vote Labour in Britain and you go and bask on the beaches of Australia. <laughs> you know, that wasn't... You know, if Sophie had come from the Ukraine, that's where I... You know, if I'd met her there, you know. 
But nonetheless, there was a feeling. There was a feeling that um, you know, you lucky guy. Yeah. Australians are great. I love them. They're always happy. They're in London. They're always you know doing the great things, working bars and giving you drinks. And you know, there's a real good feel about it. And that went on for a long time. Everybody wanted to go there. The neighbours thing. We all loved it. Um, and things changed. Really, they they changed with the the whole boat thing. Um, it, it started to look Australia this supposedly open armed, open handed, honest, fair go country suddenly started looking kind of selfish and kind of weirdly spiteful. I mean, the way that boat, you know, Howard's famous blaming, you know, they drown their own kids kind of thing. That looked horrendously spiteful from the outside. And, of course, Australia, which is very rarely mentioned, we don't, you don't hear much about Britain here. Well, we don't hear much about Australia in Britain. But every now and then you do, and always when it's horrible, obviously, and vice versa. So, you know, the idea that Australia was pulling up the drawbridge, a self-evident country of immigrants, except for our first Australians, who the world does know have not had the fair go that Australia celebrates so much for everybody else. Uh, far, so far from the fair go, it's it's almost impossible to imagine anything more diametrically opposite to a fair go that has been given to the first Australians. And I think everybody knows that, and believe me, the world does. And then suddenly the same thing's happening again. It's our country, you know, we're going to keep it to ourselves. That was a feeling that suddenly seemed to seep in. And you go away and, you know, the attitude to boat people and refugees... You know, with with you know, with with everyone sort of trying to do their bit, yeah, that was a change. And then, of course, suddenly the climate denial thing began to happen, and even the British Tory Party was aghast at Abbott, at Tony Abbott. Even you know, even British Conservatives found it extraordinary that a, a genuine bolted-on denier should be prime minister of one of the most advanced countries in the world. I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners will go, oh, well, I'll agree with him, but, I, you know, I'll tell it well, like it is. You're asking not, not me. Many no, not many of my listeners. So, yeah. You've come to a safe space. Everything started to change. And actually, you, you people sort of said, what is it with you guys? Because I'm in, funny thing is, I'm in Australia. I'll never stop being a pom. In fact, I think some of the negativity I've had has been a bit like, oh, you're a POM, you come over here. It's funny, POMs are the last ethnic group that is, it's entirely, you know, it's not, it's okay to bag. You can't say, oh, you're Chinese or you're Irish, but you can say you're a POM and, you know, which is all right. And we're holding on to it. Yeah, we'll hold on to it. As I often say, I go to barbecues, I still get blamed for Gallipoli. Once you're a POM, you're always a POM. Um, And the funny thing is, because everybody in Britain knows about my Australian life, some think, oh, I emigrated, which I never did, but I definitely half emigrated. Yeah. And will remain half emigrated all my life. I'll always be both. Um, and people, yeah, they start to say, what is it? What's going on over there? You know, everyone's, you know, you seem to have a government dedicated to saying the most unpleasantly racist and selfish and, you know, to sort of almost talking about, you know, Asian invasions and, you know, etc. And then suddenly comes the climate denial and our current prime minister, you believe me, we saw it in Britain, him waving a piece of coal around in parliament as if somehow that proves anything, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, people still... There's a huge bond between Australia and, and, and Britain, and even as we both become... There's a detail of that coal story that I, I don't know if you saw at the time, but just always just fascinates mm-hmm. me about the pathetic nature of those sort of stunts, which was... Because the big thing was that, if people remember, Scott Morrison was in the Australian Parliament, he was holding up a piece of coal, and he was taunting the opposition by saying, don't be... It's coal, don't yeah. be afraid of it, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Uh, and his big thing was, it's not scary, don't be afraid of it. But they had got it lacquered... 
yeah. you know, shellacked so, so that, that it he, they didn't get any coal on him. Yeah, it didn't get <laughs> so any So they coal were afraid of the coal they in were, the first oh, place. Yeah. You could tell it was... I mean, what about the American <laughs> one who brought a snowball in? Hey, yeah. where's global warming? I mean, mm. you, you, it beg the the... Smug ignorance beggars belief. And, yeah, so you asked me a question, and I, I don't suppose any Australian who's travelled overseas in the last 10 years will be surprised to hear that the vibe has changed. Yeah. And I'm not sure we'll ever get back, and I hope we do, because I'm Australian. Um, we'll, I'm Is not it sure just we'll ever the leadership, or has it seeped down now through our society? Because I think the idea of the ugly Australian, of the, of the kind of, you know, the, 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 the ones who, you know... Sometimes I've been to Bali a couple of times and I, I know I sh- with a lot of Australians in Bali, I share a horror of watching ugly Australians lording it around, you know, saying, oh, it's incredible, you can get it even cheaper if you beat the bloke down, he'll, he'll pay you even less, sort of, you know, a kind of feeling. Uh, and, and I think lots, you know, that's that kind of, that kind of endemic racism is not unique to Australians. Of course, the Brits abroad and the Americans abroad, anyone abroad, anyone can do that, no matter what colour or, or, or ethnicity you are. But we're talking about Australians and certainly... The idea of open-handed, good on you, always, you know, fair. The fair go thing has really gone in yeah, terms of how gone. we've how we are viewed overseas. It's just gone. You know, it's like, oh, you're looking after yourselves. That's very nice, and you know, there you go. You're an observer of politics, or at least the way that politics works. You know, mm-hmm. um, what what are, what are the failures at the moment? Because it feels to me that politics is failing us. Whether it's the people in politics, whether it's the way that politics is set up. Uh, whether it's the fact that multinational companies now have much more influence you know, globally mm. than politicians do. I'm uh, Maybe a combination of all those things or many mm. other things that I have not thought of. But yeah. when, you, when you observe the state of politics itself and you obviously mm. the media and Rupert Murdoch and the wide influence that he's had worldwide in the way that he has... I was about ab- to say, now I blame an Australian. Yeah. I mean, I think his influence is incalculable his enabling of the most brutal forces of the right. I mean, I don't dislike all conservatives by any means. I respect many. And uh, Fraser, we have a great history in Australia of good conservatives, and we do in Britain too, but there's not many of them around at the moment. I mean, look at what's happened with the Republicans, British Tory party, fallen behind a self-evident charlatan. Uh, You know, to say Boris Johnson lacks a moral compass is like saying the Flat Earth Society lacks an actual compass. (laughs) This this is a man motivated exclusively by self-interest and a grotesque sense of personal privilege and entitlement. Nobody denies it. His family don't deny it. His colleagues don't deny it. Just as nobody in the American Republican Party really denies any of Trump's venality. And they just shrug and say... Yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's a shit, but he's our shit kind of thing. And I believe it's... Murdoch really is at the heart of that enablement, the kind of brutalisation of our national conversation where suddenly it's possible to say bullying and unpleasant things in the guise of just just speaking the truth, just saying it like it is, etc. And how strange, you know, 10 years ago we had Obama... You know, we had uh, we had Blair. We, you know, we had a liberal. Now, of course, there were a lot of mistakes. I mean, you know, neoliberalism made it. The globalisation left an awful lot of people behind feeling confused. And I have no argument with people who feel my community changed too quickly. Nobody asked me that the nature of my world would change so radically. Uh, and I don't seem to have benefited from it. Benefited from it. There just seemed to be a shit more load of private yachts in Can Harbour than there used to be. I fully understand that. I understand the nature of the Brexit anger, but to see it so willfully exploited by people who have no interest in the root causes of people's anger, uh, but are interested in personal entitlement. How strange that 
In this time when we're all becoming apparently so woke and apparently you can't say anything, Britain, Australia and America are all led by over-entitled white, old or middle-aged men clearly motivated by vanity and self-interest. I mean, you can't... It's obvious, and I don't think even they deny it. I mean, Morrison might have a go at denying it. Trump and Johnson wouldn't even bother to deny it. They'd say, that makes me smart if I don't pay tax and if I look after myself. That makes me smart, and I can be smart for you. Um, you know, Morrison is a, perhaps a little bit more nuanced. He has this weird moral compass of his religion, etc., which, of course, is what makes him such a climate-denying zealot because, because he believes in the literal word of Genesis, which says specifically the earth has been given to man to exploit and use at his will. You know, it's a religious thing for him, burning coal. Mm. So how strange the place we've landed at. I don't know whether that's even remotely an answer to your question. It doesn't matter. But it's it's a, a, well, you know, I'm, a bit I'm of a fascinated by absolutely what you've observed. Mm. But then the trickiest bit is, and I don't expect full answers, but I love listening to you mm. think about these things and talk about these things. And how do we fix it? Because we now, there was a, a while where you thought if we have better facts, you know, mm. <laughs> if we just have the facts. Mm. But, you know, like I, I say now to scientists, it's like, don't put out any more reports. Yeah. Every single person who's been convinced by one of your reports is now mm. convinced by a report. Another report is not going to tip yeah. anybody over, you know, but, now. But maybe... The entire nation bursting into flames mm. might focus our thinking. I mean, Ch- Ch- Prince Charles, I mean, I'm not a massive monarchist, but I sometimes they can say some good things. And I think he has actually been really interesting over the years. And, he, you know, he made a speech 30 years ago when he said, does this North Sea really have to die before we, before we agree to the proof that it's dying? It was a very good point. He said, you know, we're constantly finding ways to say, we can see it's dying but it's not dead yet. Well, the reef's the same. You know, do we really have to... Does it have to go? Does it have to become extinct before we finally go, OK, yeah, it was going to go extinct. You're right. I didn't you believe right. when David Attenborough yeah. did that documentary, yeah, exactly. but now but that now it's, it's dead, actually dead, yeah. I believe it. I don't know what's... I, 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 you what, know, what do we do? Because well, this is... We live in a world now where it doesn't matter if you have a good set of facts because someone else will just be able to provide another set of facts. I'm in... How I'm do in, we move forward from I'm in semi-despair. I do a... I've never felt quite this way before. I'm a natural optimist. Uh, I do a lot of it on stage and have fun with it. My My ambivalence about the... Well, it's not ambivalence. My loathing of the internet. I recognise there's lots of useful things to it, but the fact that it has unwittingly and demo, de- democratised ignorance, the fact that we can now all choose our truth, we'll find it, and we'll find it proved. <laughs> you know, if you want to believe that, 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 that Bush himself individually killed every single one of the 3,000 who died on 9-11, you can find it proved on the internet. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is. I, 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 I want to take refuge in one of the great clichés, which is the young. I do see... Um, particularly in Australia, there's so many inspiring young people. Uh, you know, my kids are young Australians. They went to high school, a local state high school in, in Frio, and I'm lots of their friends. And, you know, I was thinking this is this is a generation that are not going to survive the corruption of the internet, the rampant pornography, the isolation, etc. And, of course, there have been many, many, many terrible things. But nonetheless, I see vibrant, engaged, intelligent young people finding... Um, beyond the, 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 you know, the, 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 the manipulation of the media, both online and in the old media, finding some truth and, and, and speaking up for it. And, uh, yeah, I think we have to, we have to believe, believe that you know, there will be a renewal of, of, of principle and care with a generation that can see the nature of greed. 
I mean, my I tried to write a novel about this. The new boat people are the billionaires. They're literally they're not doing what I did in Stark, which was they went to the went to space. But what is it with these super yachts? Clearly, these people can see that the quality of life is deteriorating. You walk around. I walk out of a beautiful restaurant in London, having had a lovely meal, and I have to step over eighteen-year-old young women who are sleeping in fear of their lives in doorways. The idea that the quality of my life as a rich person, and I am a wealthy person, not as wealthy as a lot of people think, but certainly a hell of a lot more wealthy than I ever imagined I would be, uh, and, and yet my, clearly the quality of my life is, is utterly undermined by living in a society in brutal distress. And I think the proof of that is, is that, 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 that people are building their own bloody cities and going and floating offshore in order to avoid the reality of their own creation. And I really do think that the... the, the I want more photos of those super yachts because I think the pen is dropping very quickly that this is evidence of an absolute dislocation of morality in our society where people can mess it up and then float away. And I think young people can see that. And I believe that there will be, there will be a reckoning. And I hope, it's, I hope it's not a violent reckoning. I don't want blood on the streets. Mm. But I do want to see this age of entitlement readjusted back to an age of community. It all, it all started... In the, in the 80s, Thatcher and Reagan, when the post-war consensus was broken, it was started long before the internet. After the Second World War, it was so self-evident that only communities can solve problems. I mean, the world had reached a crisis of beyond beyond imagination. There was a darkness deeper than the Middle Ages coming for us called Nazism, and the world as a community fought back. And after the Second World War, even right-wing Tory parties believed that community was at the heart of individual empowerment. If you want to lead a decent life, your community needs to be healthy. And suddenly we had welfare state politics, which were respected on left and right. And that was called the post-war consensus. The legacy of FDR in America, the, the Clement Attlee legacy here, and 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 and, and the similar in Australia, Chifley and, and etc. In the 80s, suddenly that was shattered and the centre ground moved to the right. Thatcher and Reagan suddenly said, no, it's not the community, it's the individual that matters. If we exalt the individual, then the community will be exalted in its wake. And, and that is where we've been ever since. And all politicians, including on the left, have tended to move that way, have tended to say what we really need to do is to empower the individual, to give them the reins and they'll create the wealth that will bring everyone along with them. Well, clearly it's gone too far because those individuals have floated away with their supermodels and their massive gas-guzzling stink boats and we're left with a world where community politics is seen as somehow naff and old-fashioned. In well, the long run, you, it's all about community. You talk about the internet. Mm. So the internet itself not inherently good or bad, right? Mm. It's the environment in which you like launch... Like guns. The, <laughs> yeah, you, it's the environment in which you launch the internet into. Yes. So if the focus of the you know, world had been community, mm. the internet could become one of the greatest tools of all time, and it often is. Like, right. you've expressed already yeah. the idea of how strong it can be in community. Yeah. But it, it was born into an age of neoliberalism of people, exactly. and uh, you know, individual This person. is a good point, Will. And therefore, you know, A, the companies themselves reflect that. You suddenly have Mark Zuckerberg controlling... Pretending you know, they're hippies, but right. actually, yeah. But secondly, it, it, it was reflected in the way that we 
constructed the internet. You know, the idea that you go on your Instagram page and show off your, you your, your boat or whatever was at one stage would have been laughed at or mocked or rejected, but now is You're embraced. You're absolutely right. I hadn't really thought that, but because it came of age in an age which had already been defined by conspicuous greed mm. and conspicuous consumption. Uh, you know, when I was young, we still had that old idea that, you know, you're not supposed to be, you know, do well. Like if you sold out, you're playing a big theatre, you know, which is pretty crap as well. Mm. You know, that was kind of also weird. But nonetheless, there was an idea that you had a responsibility to the people who bought tickets to see you. Um, whereas now, I mean, my, my kids, my boys, like they talk in breathless admiration at, at the sums that sports people make and everything and good, which is sort of fair enough. I mean, if anyone's going to get it, why not some working class kid who's managed to use talent mm. to get somewhere? But nonetheless, the idea that the more you make, kind of the better you are in a way which is a Trumpian ethic, yeah, didn't predated the internet. And you're absolutely right. The internet certainly became a place for everyone to say, look at me, look at me, look at me, rather than look at us. Having said that, we both agreed that it's also been somewhere where those who feel isolated can find, can find companionship. Of course, that works also for neo-Nazis, but, uh, on, <laughs> yes. on, which is terrible, but nonetheless, it also helps for people who are struggling with their gender identity and they can find, they can find comfort and support amongst peers who may not live next door. And so... Of course, there's good and bad, and it all comes down to personal morality, and my personal morality is that in the long run, it always takes a village. Nothing, very little good ever came solely from an individual. I mean, Churchill's war leadership was astonishing and prescient and important, and I admire him greatly. But, of course, what he led was a, was a committed community who all made group sacrifices and didn't think about themselves. And um, I think we have kind of lost that, and in... Donald Trump, we have the personification of somebody who says, I was smart. I just looked after myself. I can do that for you too. It's a strange, strange thing that we that, that, that a large groups of people fall for that because it's not going to end well. And then we have a, like, and excuse the, the very tired pun here, but the, the Phoenix rising from the ashes, the Australian bushfires happen, mm -hmm. and suddenly you see communities again, mm. right? You know, not people asking the person that they're holding a hose next to fighting a fire whether they mm. voted for a different political party to where mm. they voted. People genuinely are acting to help each other. People are raising you know, yeah. funds, events, coming together, communities coming together. And in deep together. adversity, obviously the best of us comes out. And, of course, there's a, there's a great long um, tradition and a great of, of, of tenacious resistance uh, to hardship in, you know, Australian uh, community life. And uh, But there is everywhere. You know, all people... Have, have have courage to come together. No, and, it's a uniquely and, Australian construct. No, you know, like we like to like claim being things. Friends. Like yeah, being friends. Bloody no, mateship. No one has friends no. outside of Australia. <laughs> you know. um, yeah, that kind of gets on your nerves a little we bit. We never but, saw that TV show, yeah. Friends. No, it was quite a popular show, yeah, guys. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's, do you think they actually mates? Like, really, oh. they're there for... I'll yeah. be there for you. I thought it's only Australians who were there for each other. Um, yeah, that's why I'm kind of going to touch on that on stage as well. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the current Qantas ad. I, I love much about Qantas. It's a great in many ways, but oh my God, the you know Aussies are the only kind of fun-loving larrikins, and you know you you see someone having fun anywhere, it's he's bound to be an Aussie because you know they just you know they're just great. You know, it's a very strange advert. The current the current safety ad. I won't go into it. Any it deeper. does feel a little like the more that we go away from that being what we're really like, the more we're leaning into 
that being how we were trying to present ourselves to the yes, world. Yes, it does a bit. If you've got to say it that often, maybe mm. it's not true. It's yeah. like when I first went to Western <laughs> Australia and the number plate said the state of excitement. Mm. It's like, if you've got to say it on the bumpers, yeah. then maybe <laughs> maybe me thinks the lady does protest too much, you know. It's like, you know, it's like calling yourself rock and roll. It's like that great Rick, Ricky Gervais thing where you say, I'm, I'm rock and roll. If you have to say you're rock and roll, you are not rock and roll. You know, underneath this suit, I'm pure rock and roll. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the feeling... Yeah, Yes, there's no doubt about it that that, 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 that was a marvellous example of what can be done. Unfortunately, it's equally exploitable by the right. You say, look, we don't need government intervention because you'll all hold your own own hoses. To me, community is beyond reacting to a crisis. Most, most of humanity will help, will lend a hand when they can, although the more you become attuned to the to a brutalised society, you know, the, the more often you have to step over another desperate person in a doorway, the kind of more hardened you get to it. Because even I, well, I say even I, but even those of us who, much, every, most people which hope they're of good heart, but eventually, well, I haven't got any more coins. I don't have any more. I can't, I can't do this every doorway, you know. And that's why I would say, you have, just as with climate, you want to change homelessness, you need a political solution. It can never be about individual charity. It's got to be a political solution. We've got to see community politics in our national politics it you know charity is a good thing but it's never going to change anything and all these live aid concerts and fire aid and firefight that's brilliant and it's an important thing but as russell said on the night you know we've got to vote for for for, for the, the community is 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 represented by its government in the long run government does for every one thing an individual or a charity does, a government does a thousand things. So we must demand that the, the government reflects the community. The government reflects that spirit you were talking about. And currently, I would say it absolutely doesn't because its commitment is continues to be exalting the individual. Look at him. He must be great. He just bought a billion-dollar yacht. I think that probably means he's not very great at all. Yeah, it's when you see Jeff uh, Bezos, uh, you know, buying a $250 million house and, you know, you're like, all he really did was, you know, worked out that people had to shop. Yeah. It wasn't really a revolutionary idea that they might like stuff delivered to their house. And he's built this company on not paying any taxes. And then we celebrate, we're meant to celebrate. The newspaper article was not being critical of the fact that he had built a... You know, yes, I find that genuinely extraordinary that there's la- there is and seems to be no... No uh, actionable anger. We don't seem to be able to weaponize the natural discomfort we feel at the lack of tax paid by big corporations. And it's because we've had 30 years of, 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 of Trumpism, even though it took a long time for him to actually put the human face to it. If it is yeah, he didn't face. start it. He's no. the, but the idea, ultimate example. Hey, he's smart. I mean, I'll ne- you know, Trump was asked, how did, how did you manage to pay so little tax? I'm smart. And people thought somehow, I suppose, and everyone feels so helpless that maybe that simple message of, you know, I was greedy, I can make you greedy too, as opposed to the much more... I mean, the arguments on the left are always more complicated. You know, cutting tax is a simple thing to say. You want to pay less tax? Yeah, there's nobody who doesn't want to do that. Do you want less broken paving stones? Do you want more nurses? Those are more complicated issues. If you had a, which is why referendums are so bloody stupid. If you have a referendum tomorrow, do you want to pay less tax? You'll get a 99% yes. You have a referendum the following day, do you want the roads repaired and the hospitals updated? You'll get another 99% yes. Two referendums diametrically opposite 
points. You literally, one disproves the other and you get a yes for both, which is why referendums, even when they're good, like we get a gay marriage revival, are an abdication of the very principles of parliamentary democracy. We vote to be represented in Parliament so people can debate complicated issues and arrive at nuanced answers, which sometimes are compromises, are always compromises. The, 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 the European referendum was the biggest abdication of political responsibility uh, since Pontius Pilate washed his hands. If David Cameron had wanted us out or in, he should have run on a platform, vote for my party, we will do this. Parliamentary democracy dies the day we start to say, let's have a referendum, let's ask the people. Who are the people? They're all different. And some of them are reading newspapers by someone with it. Well, we're all being influenced by agendas. I'm not immune, you know. I read The Guardian. It <laughs> How do you keep yourself, like, I mean, as immune as you possibly can be to do your job correctly? Like, how do you personally, when you're reading things, you know, put it through your... Is it just an instinctive thing because you've been doing it for so many years that you're able to go... Uh, or do you actually, you know, still have in your mind, well, look, I've got to acknowledge this is from, you know, you know, the left perspective versus the, you know, the right perspective well, that I've I'm getting here. I've never been as left as some people, the right wing says I am, and I've certainly never been remotely right wing, which is a lot on the left have said I am. One of the great, great disasters of leftish, leftist social democratic politics is, is that it is so much better at eating itself than it is at it's eating very the good at it. I mean, it is... It is so depressing how much people of the left like killing each other. Yeah. Factionalisation. I remember this when I was at university. There were ten different red tops, we called them, socialist worker, international Marxist, and they all hated each other yeah. uh, much more than they hated Thatcher. Um, That's why I, they, that, uh, one of the greatest jokes from Life of Brian is, you know, the People's uh, Front of Judea, the uh, Judean People's Front splitters. Uh, you know, uh, that, that joke, it's, it's one brilliant. of those great pieces. I didn't understand it as a kid, no. what it was actually saying. I just thought it was a funny joke, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. When you grow up and you go, this is a commentary the on, the left on the left eating itself. Factionalisation eats itself. Look, I, I, I'm kind of middle of the road. You know, I think always kind of what I would want for myself, I want for everyone else. You know, yeah. most people are like that. I'm certainly not. I, God, I think it might come across as if I think I'm some kind of pious, you know, person. I'm not. I, I, I recognise my own foibles massively, uh, but I, I trust myself always to try and do my best. You know, above, as Polonius said to Hamlet, above all, sign own self be true. Don't write stuff that you secretly know is, 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 is brutal or wrong, that you don't really believe it, but you know it'll get a laugh or it'll move people. Don't take the easy option in political debate. Don't, don't you know... You know, the way people will suddenly, like, start talking about veterans. Uh, they don't care about veterans, but they want to uh, say it because they think they'll get a cheer. Or, I mean, Trump, as if, it, as, if any, as if there's ever been anyone who has done less for the causes of the military in personal terms, in his, his Vietnam deferments, but also in terms of avoiding tax for 40 years. He's done nothing for the military, and now he invokes them in every second sentence. Now, he knows he's being a hypocrite, but he exalts it because he, he lacks a moral compass. I don't think I do lack a moral compass, and I don't think most people do. Um, well, you talked about why... core principles there. Yeah. Uh, so th this podcast, the loose conceit of it, and look, we, we've covered it you know, particularly anyway, but is that I ask people if they have a particular guiding principle to their life or a philosophy or something that they, you know, is a core thing that they come back to that defines the way that they go about life in any way. You've mentioned a lot of things already in the conversation that we have, but is there anything else that comes to mind when I ask you that question about 
having a, a life philosophy? Is there a philosophy to which you kind of, why you do the work you do or how you do the work you do or why you live the life you live? I don't think about it. I'm a not a remotely introspective person. I only oh, ever, really? I only ever think about any of this stuff when mm. I'm talking. You know the famous Ian Foster quote? It's, it's something along the lines of, how can I tell you what I think until I've heard what I have to say? Yeah. And, I, and that, that, I think, for me, my life and my art is an improvisation. Uh-huh. Like anyone who puts a pen to paper or a, or a brush to canvas, they don't really know what it's going to be until they've completed it. And so you have to follow your instincts. I feel the same way about the way I live my life. I have to follow... Follow my instincts. Do what you think is right at the time. Paint that stroke. Write that word, uh, and consider it and think about it. But let it let it flow. Um, and I come back to Polonius. Uh, above all, say and self be true. Now I don't think I don't think that means if I feel like punching that bloke, I should punch it. That, that, that's a very shallow truth, a deep truth. Where do you go to, my lovely, when you're alone in your bed, to quote a 60s pop song? If you can still believe you should have punched that person, de- I'm a horrible image, I wish I hadn't used it, but, <laughs> but, uh, I, and I, but none, I, what I'm saying yes. is, is if you, I'm not saying, oh, if you feel it, do it, but I am saying if deep down you feel you shouldn't do it, then remember not to, and that, that comes, for instance, to voting. If you really know that it's a selfish vote, if it, or it's a selfish act, or it's a selfish line if you know that you're on stage being selfish getting jokes at someone's expense the best example is Trump doing a doing a what used to be called a spastic mime. I don't know what the term would be now but a deeply offensive impression of disability um you know he knows exactly what he's doing but he doesn't care now most people who feel the need to do something like that probably do know it's wrong and then you shouldn't do it seems obvious but I think in the long run, we all have conscience, and I think we should. Let's quote Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> Always let your conscience be your guide. That was, uh, that was from, what was it? Pinocchio, I think. <laughs> uh, tell me, uh, when you have children, you obviously have to think about how you explain the world to them. Mm. Um, uh, how quickly did you allow them to see the real world? Were you a protective parent, or were you a parent who was always... You know, if they ask me a question, I'm going to tell them the sort of honest answer. Did you have a particular you yeah, know, guide not. to parenting? Common sense. You know, you don't break. You know, I do know people who go, I told them immediately mm. there's no Father Christmas. Yeah. Oh, OK. Well, I <laughs> okay. kind of see your point, but I'm, I'm not doing that. You know, but, you know, you, again. And I mean immediately. You know, they were just con- born. <laughs> con- con- conscience meets practicality. You know, yeah. you can't always do the right thing. You can't always be as good as you'd like to be, but do your best. Uh, and certainly in terms of bringing up your kids. I mean, we were, I wish, <laughs> I, 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 we couldn't. We didn't have any boundaries. I mean, they turned out... I, I always had a view that my parents had with us, which is that in the long run, we have to trust you to sort of form your own moral decisions. And, you know, they knew we weren't ever going to cancel Christmas or even pocket money. You know, there'd be an hour of horror and then it'd all be back to normal again. And things. We didn't smack, you know, by instinct. We've never done that. Um, I think that you... You 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 take a, 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 a you take decisions with your children guided by principle and practicality, and in the long run you try and keep them away from coke as long as you can. Coca Cola, I'm talking about. <laughs> well, uh, you know, fizzy drinks, a general whatever. Principle. <laughs> but in the long run, they're going to have some, and, and you shouldn't beat yourself up about it. You know. Yeah. So that was that was kind of kind of our view. You know, we were relaxed as parents. Uh, you you observed the Australian education system. I'm fascinated by education and what you might think the hmm. flaw in our current education system are as a general principle. I'm not looking for specifics, but are we teaching children the right way, do you think? Is there confidence in the education system? 
look, I, I have to get political. I point no fingers. Everyone must make their own decision. But I believe that the the absolute, utterly unplay, unfair playing field um, in terms of the ridiculous overinvestment in private schools. And by overinvestment, the idea, well, you know, you've paid your taxes, so that's already a given. You know, the idea that somehow a taxpayer means that they, the fact that they then don't go to a state school means they should get more. I know there'll be a lot of people listening. I'm not... I'm not. Sometimes you've got a local school that maybe it is, isn't good. You know, maybe it's not good. Although ours was, and I think uh, the state education system on the whole has produced a magnificent result for Australia over many generations. And I think then the, the current imbalance, which was so point so outlined uh, underlined by the Gonski report, that it is it is now insane. I mean, there is not a private school in WA that doesn't have a fully functioning theatre that any town would be proud of. It's not necessary, you know? I mean, it's too much anyway. I mean, I think if you want kids to understand theatre, put them in a black box with two lights and see what you can, they can do with it. That's what my university drama department was like. I think having a fully functioning theatre with computerised... Mm. I don't even think it's good for education in drama. I think you should tr- try and do it under a tree. Try and see if you can be, be funny in a shed or, 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 or dramatic in a shed. I remember when we studied Lear, my, my, my teacher dragged us all out in a storm to do some of the Howl 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 speech in the rain, you know. It was great. So, look, I'm sure there are some people listening and I'm not... And most of my friends' kids go to private school, certainly in Britain as well. But personally, I think education should reflect the community. And one of the great things, actually, about the American education system was until recently, it really was pretty egalitarian. Everyone went to the local high school, the rich kids and the poor kids. They all... Because there wasn't that kind of archipelago of... I keep using that word, of, of, of private schools everywhere. So for mo- there were a few posh, really posh American private schools. But on the whole, they all went to the town high school and rooted for the town high school team, etc., etc. And I think that builds a better community. I think community does start at school. Look, it's, I know this is going to be controversial for some. You know, I've certainly got many, lots of kids I know, privately educated. There you go, that's fine. I love you all. But for me... A government should have the courage to say the state system needs a lot of help. And if it's at the expense of another swimming pool in the private sector, then that should be self-evidently the right thing to do. Yeah, don't blame don't blame Ben, by the way. Blame me for asking the question where I was hoping you'd say something like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we, we've got to start finishing up, but it takes mm. both of us a while to do things yeah. like that. So I'm going to start now. Um, uh, I always ask people on this podcast, uh, what do you think happens when we die? I think uh, we are properly dead. I am an atheist. Uh, I've always been an atheist, and that does not mean I lack an appreciation of the glorious mysteries of the universe, the poetry, the the endless potential that may be defined by love, it may be defined by some unknowable philosophical truth. I mere- And if you wish to call those things God, you can. But I decline absolutely to give that God, to personify it and presume I know what that his, his or her opinions are for the next general election or whether there's a, such a thing as gay marriage. To me, the ultimate human arrogance is the idea that if there is a God, we know what it thinks. And so I, I personally am an atheist. I don't know what the mysteries of the universe are, but I believe we return to them without any further influence other than the footprint we left the memories we leave and what we did on earth. That we live on in. We live only on in the memories of those who loved or or knew us or hated us and the actions we took while we lived. But I think we die absolutely. I don't believe in the soul. I don't believe in ghosts. But I do believe in memories 
and I believe in the ongoing mission of humanity towards the power of good, and I think that's human, not religious. And I, I, I decline to respect any organised religion. I respect the individuals. But the idea that people who call themselves a faith have some special knowledge, some moral high ground, turning to a faith leader, what do you think? To me, that is a very strange thing to do. The universe is a mystery. It's impossible to think that man could any any human being can understand it. So, if the universe is a mystery mm. and you are an atheist, mm. like I, I understand the, the I mean I am also, mm. but uh, the prism through a religious person or a person who has a you know belief system, mm. their argument is always you know well I know you know what you know, human life my life is about because I have this belief mm. system and it gives me a little gu- guiding principle for my life. For those of us who don't have that, what's your what do you think your life is about? What is your contribution you know, to you the world of humanity? You just replace God with love. Yeah. You replace God with humanity. And many religious people would be happy with that. The problem comes when we start saying we know what that, that thing thinks and wants of us. Of course it's wonderful to invent stories that give some meaning to ourselves and, it, and, it, and, and to imagine that we live on after death. And I love all that. I'm glad I studied the Bible at, universe, uh, at school because in those days you had to because it's the basis of most Western literature. So, you know, if you want to understand Shakespeare, you'd better have a pretty good understanding of the Bible. Same goes for any, any painting prior to 1900. Um, and they're great stories too. And I love the Christmas story. And if you replace God with love or whatever. So I don't think... La- declining to believe in the no, the, cons- the the the, poss- the the idea of a personified god leaves you out of the idea of faith in humanity our ongoing duty towards the betterment the power of good uh, and so you know that's almost semi-religious but it takes out the idea of a god that we can possibly know if you want to maybe there is a god but we just don't and will never know. So I think better to focus on our own selves and our own duty and not abdicate responsibility and say, it's okay, God told me to. No, no, you told yourself to, and you are utterly arrogant and, in my opinion, wicked to claim some deified justification for your own spite or bigotry or even your good acts. They are part of you. They're not some divine mission. You've invented that. You've made that up. No one ever talked to God. So I was talking to God the other day, having a conversation with God. I put on an American accent. That's a bit unfair. Mm. How utterly arrogant. How, how it, It's beyond conception the level of arrogance you need to have to claim that you were talking to God the other day and that hence lends some significance to whatever you're about to, to say. Uh, to me, it's inexplicable. But if you wish to take comfort in a beautiful story, then I'm with you on that, and I take comfort too. I just prefer to think of it as love as opposed to God. Uh, death is it is death something that you think about? No, but of course it's getting closer. So I suppose I'm just beginning to. I suppose think more about what time I've got left. I say to my wife, I count every minute. I make them all count. I reckon I got twenty good years left, and then ten years just drinking. I love a drink. I like to sit and drink. Well, because what friends. I was about to say to you is that you look remarkably well and fit. You have you got your... how much I drink? I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you got yourself sort of show fit? Is that part of what's no, going I'm on? Always or you've fit. always fit. I I made a decision a long time ago. I love to. I do. I do love to drink. Mm. I, I enjoy it. I think it's one of nature's great gifts. Uh, of course, it can be dangerous, but, you know, whatever. You know, anything can be. Hang gliding is dangerous if you want to do it, you know. Um, and I try to vaguely keep an eye on it, but I love it. And I, I like to drink. Although I, like I will say chips. to anyone out there, if you are hang gliding yeah, lightly, 
Don't drink. <laughs> That's <laughs> too much hang gliding. Yeah. You know, like, hang gliding drunk is yeah. a big nut. Uh, I no, and I certainly wouldn't drink drive. I, uh, look, I, I I like to eat Yorkshire pudding. I like to eat. I have fairly nursery tastes in my food. Uh. I love pies and mash, and and I like to, as I say, have a drink. So I many many years ago I started to exercise, and I exercise every day. I do about 45, 50 minutes hard. I got my own treadmill. Uh, it get it gets Netflix. That's a recent a recent addition, <laughs> uh, and um, I think that. I've got to a point where I need it, I, and I, I can paddleboard on the swim. I'm very lucky. I live on yeah. a nice river. There's a there's some dolphins you occasionally see, very beautiful. Uh, and so for me, regular exercise is a very central part of my life. I feel kind of bad if it, if it, if two, let alone one day, two days goes by. And if you you can get yourself into that habit, the first five years of regular exercise are hell. I used to say, you know, time is relative. I used to try this routine. Einstein said time is, is relative to where you are in the universe. Well, if you're on a treadmill, it's, it's, it's stopped dead. <laughs> it doesn't move at all. Uh, but uh, after about five years, you start to need it. And um, now I, I, you know, I can't say I enjoy it, but I, I, I need it. I like to exercise. Uh, so you're conscious about looking after yourself to balance it out from mm. the yeah, worst successes, which is I, I like that approach as well, which, you know, yeah. uh, what do you watch? Because I'm fascinated by what you take in because so much of is going out of your bin, you know, in mm. your, you know, so many ideas in everything that you do and you're back on stage, you know, mm. ideas going out. I'm very interested in the ideas going in, in the first place. What sort of stuff are you consuming? What do I'm you a grazer, love? you know, uh, I get things very quickly, which maybe I'm wrong, but I can watch something and think well I kind of get that I don't have to do it all because obviously the whole nature of modern television is everybody trying to lure audiences ever further in you know don't call Saul will never resolve itself mm. because it will kill its own goose it right. just wants to keep introducing intriguing things that make you think oh my god where are they going with this you know whole new character came into this episode what happened there you know um, <laughs> I, I'm not fooled by that I, uh, you've jumped the shark now you, you, you basically you, you, I'm, I don't <laughs> say that one specifically I plucked that out of the yeah. air um, I watch I don't watch a lot of comedy I love history uh, I read a lot of history I very I think I've read more written more novels than I've read I wish I wrote I wrote more read more novels you don't have enough time uh, what have I watched recently succession is brilliant I tend to watch things on planes but then of course then I don't remember because I've been drinking I love to nudge the trolley <laughs> on a train plane I mean there is nothing like sitting back get choosing putting on cue choosing yeah. your movie and nudging the trolley yeah. and by the end of it you can't remember what you're watching well they say yeah. uh, one on the, what is it uh, one in the air is two on the ground anyway well so. I have a lot more than one in the air let me tell you. and you sort of drink more strangely when you're up in the air you suddenly think Do you know what I fancy a Kahlua yeah. you know, I never drink a Kahlua I know. and now I'm sipping one watching yeah. a rom-com a Bailey's yeah. for yeah. me, yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah. I whatever would not reason. drink Bailey's at any in other time. No, exactly. Well, you know, Bailey's would be nice. Well, it's, I watch. A it's a strange thing. <laughs> so I don't watch a lot. I mean, it's, you know, like everyone, you're so confused. You put on Netflix, you know, what do I watch? And then they're making stuff too fast at the moment. The quality mm. is not is not as high as they think it is. Just booking a big star doesn't make a series brilliant. Uh -huh. And I think on the whole, everybody's rushing everything. And good ideas. Not to, I don't like dissing other people's work, but there was a thing called um, uh, Morning Wars with Jennifer oh, Aniston yeah, yeah, and Reese yeah, Witherspoon. Uh, yeah, and, it, and it was show. it was pretty good. But mm. you know, it was it would have been so much better if they'd taken another pass on the script. Mm. Just give themselves six more months. But they clearly were desperately trying to get in there, and it was good. But it it, it wasn't as good as it thought it was. And and I think there's an awful lot of that going on with high quality, high end, high budget stuff. 
And I, I've done something which I never do, which is criticise other people's work. I've been on the end of it so often. But I criticise it with, you know, uh, it with, with, with nuance a, because a, it was a, a good piece of work. A commentary about the mm. state of the industry yeah. right now more than about the specific yeah, things you're absolutely. talking about. I, I think there's too big a rush for content and, 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 and too much buying quality. Same with movies. Oh, we get someone in it, that's the first thing. I've tried to get movies off the ground. It takes forever. And the first question literally is who's in it? Can you attach someone? Doesn't matter what the script is. Doesn't matter what the idea is. Who's in it? And that's kind of weird because I don't think people go to see movies just because oh Tom Cruise is in it. You know they'll look, but that doesn't make him go necessarily. And I think the same goes for high end TV. At the moment, I will recommend Succession. Uh, uh, it's a very fine piece of work. It was interesting you said earlier on about the idea that the next generation will grow up with these things and they're rejecting some of these things. Mm. You know, we see it's it's sometimes it's just the generation who had none of it and then had all of it, don't know how to handle it. I think at the moment human beings were a little bit like, you know, the, the kid who's never had, you know, sugar, and then finally they're on the, by themselves and all they eat is sugar, you know. Yeah, and think... we're like that with the internet and entertainment and all these things. We haven't... We never had this capacity to watch all these things and do all these things. Mm. And so now we feel like we just have to. We have to keep consuming and consuming and consuming, I think, whereas maybe the generation that's raised with it will have a different I think that's, perspective that's possible and hopeful, but we are infinitely corruptible and it takes an awful lot of effort not to take that extra chip out of the, out of the nibbles bowl and it takes an awful lot of effort not to watch the next episode when it's mm -hmm. literally saying next episode beginning in three seconds. You know, my wife's much better at it than me. We'd binge more if she didn't say, well, I'm going to bed. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm stopping now. One episode's enough. Um, I hope... I hope we do exercise self-restraint as a race. So far, the signs aren't looking great, um, but we have to hope. We two, have to hope. two more questions and we're done. Mm. So uh, have you seen the movie? Well, this one counts as uh, a two-parter. Firstly, have you seen the movie Groundhog Day? Yes. Yeah, so you're familiar with the conceit. Bill yes. Murray's living the same day over and over until he has to resolve something yeah. in his life. But in between... Uh, he learns how to play piano, does a whole bunch of things. Like mm. he has time amongst it to pursue something. Yeah, yeah. You know, while he's living his thousand days or thousand years, mm. he has time to get good at something amongst it. So you're living in Groundhog Day. You know, uh, what would you like to get good at when funny, you have the funny time? Funny you say play, play the piano. I mean, I've always, always wished I could play a musical instrument. I'm married to a musician. I love rock and pop. I would love to be able to write songs. I've written lyrics for songs, written lyrics for mm -hmm. Andrew Lloyd Webber. I've written lyrics for the Wiggles. I would like <laughs> to be able to write the, the tunes as well. Uh, so, yeah, I think I'd learn the guitar and the piano if I had that time. But I tried a little bit. I'm not very patient. And time for me is the ultimate tyranny. That's You talk about death. Um, so Groundhog Day would be great. I would love more time, as long as I'm healthy. Mm -hmm. if, if I lose my marbles, obviously, as everybody says, please push me off a cliff. But don't, because you'd go to prison because of our ridiculous obsession. And, uh, you know, for me, I'm very pro-euthanasia. And obviously, mm -hmm. complex, nuanced subject, mm -hmm. but nonetheless... We're, you're in the right state. The you can yeah. get it done here. Well, absolutely. I definitely... I saw my dad lose his mental capacities, and I know it was literally the one end he wanted to avoid more than any other. And I think most people feel that. And I would certainly rather die than lose my mental capacities. Each of their own. That's my opinion. Um, time matters. I would love a bit of Groundhog Day and I would probably try and write the, the piano, but maybe I'd just end up writing more and more scripts and comedy because <laughs> that's what I spend all my time doing.
Mm. Uh, uh, final question. I have a time machine. I don't for legal reasons. I should point that out. But if I did, uh, it would have a, a return trip that you could take to anywhere in history. The ultimate question. Or to anywhere in your own life. I dream of having a time machine often. I don't, I don't actually dream, but I, it's my ultimate fantasy, as it is for most people. But I love history. I've written, I've tried, I make my own little time machine. I've written three historical novels, although I wouldn't go back to the First World War. Um, oh, it, it's impossible to say. My own life, I'd go back to my wedding day. It was just the best day of my life. Um out of a billion choices, um, I think I would go and see the Beatles play in the Cavern Club. It's a great answer. <laughs> uh, ben Elton, this has been an absolute pleasure. I will do a proper plug at the top of the episode with all the dates and let people know anything else. But what else can, apart from the fact that you're back doing stand-up, what else should we tell people about? Well, i got a new play just opened in London, but I, if anybody's going over to London, based on There my, are people listening in London. Um, I've seen the numbers. My <laughs> David Mitchell sitcom, uh, which uh, is about William Shakespeare, called Upstart Crow. Uh, it's been a big hit on the BBC, and now there's a play of it, a new piece, not a mashup of the old okay. series, and that's open to... Wonderful reviews in uh, in London uh, last week. So the Upstart Crow is my new play. Uh, I have various things bubbling in my mind as always, but my big focus at the moment has has been my return to stand up. It dominated last year in the UK, and it's a big big challenge for me here in Oz, New, Ze- New Zealand, because a lot of the material, you know, I can probably mention Boris Johnson, but I don't think anybody's going to want to hear a, a five minute, ten minute riff on him. So I've got to start writing my Scott Morrison routine. I don't think it's going to be too hard. <laughs> <laughs> ben, thank you very much, mate. My pleasure. 